and we dropped you off. I was in the car with mom and even now I'm getting emotional. And she dropped me off back at the office and I actually sobbed my eyes out. I'm already tearing (laughs) up. I did. I actually sobbed my eyes out. I couldn't actually stop crying. And we're live. Are you ready? Let me just make sure. (laughs) Don't just just film already. Okay, we're going. (laughs) Good. We're going, we're going. So this has been a pretty big process, eh? What, setting up microphones or, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, getting to the stage? Well, it's been a big process today, <laughs> but uh, I think the building of this place has been an either, even bigger process. And um, yeah, I pretty much did everything by myself. I had no help at all. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I paid for everything myself as uh, well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you don't know, this is my dad, Tony Rubin, and uh, he is an absolute legend. Not just because he's my dad, mainly because he's my dad. (laughs) But yeah, he does. uh, I don't think I'm a legend outside this household, though. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're a a legend. A well-kept secret. Yeah. So so anyway, I wanted to start this uh, podcast off with a episode with my dad because we've been through a lot together over the years, and I thought it would be a great way to kind of yeah just kick things off. You get to know a little bit more about me. You get to know about my past and also about my father. And also, we get to know how everything works in the studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good test <laughs> run, I guess. And um, so, a lot of people know this about me, but a lot of people don't as well. I've had quite a past with addiction. And my dad has been through everything with me. So has my mom. So has my brother. And um, yeah, my family has just been absolutely incredible. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to bring my dad on because a lot of people hear about addiction through the eyes of an addict or through the the thinking process of an addict, but not a lot of people hear it from the parent's perspective. So it's difficult as a parent. There's no doubt. Yeah. So (laughs) that's why I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on to give that kind of, you know, just a different perspective, a different take on it. But that's a a pretty heavy start to the podcast. I mean, I remember going to a meeting with you and and uh, I go, had to go into the parents' room or the, and then it's called Naranon, I think. Yeah, no, is that what it is? Naranon. I think so. Yeah. And sometimes there was only one other parent in there, and the guy that was there didn't even his kid wasn't even in the other room. Yeah. So basically, a lot of parents really struggle with this, and uh, not all kids want to get better, I guess. And um, yeah, a lot of the time, parents are left feeling like they don't know what to do. So they go to these meetings, which is generally meant to be a support system for parents whose kids are in, in uh, recovery as well. But a lot of the time, parents go just because they don't know what to do with themselves. Um, yeah, because they need the support and their kids aren't even necessarily in recovery. But anyway, before we get into this… We got to go back a few years, I let's, guess. <laughs> let's start with the story that happened today. So… <laughs> You know I brought a pigeon home today. Today I brought a pigeon home. And um, I was on my way here to the studio, which is definitely not in my parents' house. <laughs> it's in my parents' house. So, um, yeah, so I was on my way here today to film this podcast. And in the middle of a four-lane highway, there was something flapping around. And I thought it was just like a piece of plastic or something. 
And uh, I drove straight over it. When I looked back in my rearview mirror, it was a bird. Well, it's one of many. I mean, let's face it, over the years, we've had dogs, cats, rats, snakes, birds. We, I remember we started off, the, the story started off, Josh wanted a bird. No, sorry, he wanted a snake. I'm always, I'm always, bringing, <laughs> I'm always bringing animals home, and, basically. And to talk him out of it, we told him he could have a bird. And the bird turned into two birds and three birds. And eventually we built this aviary. And then one day he brought home a white dove. <laughs> what do we call it? Angel. Angel. And then we bought, he got, found a second white dove. And all they did was mate all day. They had a lot of sex. And <laughs> there was so much interbreeding, we ended up with 30 or so white doves that all were genetically... <laughs> Let's call them genetically <laughs> modified. Well, <laughs> they were not too bright. <laughs> Poor old angel. Yeah. Fortunately, eventually we found a home for everything. Somebody picked up the Avery and all the birds and everything. Yeah, I was getting a bit out of control. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think let's, uh, let's get into it a little bit here. Obviously, a lot of things have been happening. I mean, I'm 25 and I just moved out for the first time, which I think was long overdue. But I'm yep. glad I waited till this point because I feel like I'm a, in a good place in my life. And also, I just became an uncle and you became a grandpa. Yeah. And I'm so ready. What You're a ready? Cute, yeah, what a cute kid. <laughs> um, yeah. What's, I mean, what's going through your mind with that? A lot yeah. going on. Listen, it was hard seeing you move out, although I knew it was the right time. I think we all knew it was the right time. Um, you weren't really growing. You were, you know, held up in your room a lot, not really, not really going out much. And I think it's, I think it's been great for all of us, actually. I, I thought there would be a big void in the house, but uh, it's been okay. We're already getting used to it, and I think you're getting used to your new place. I'm not going to lie. I'm loving yeah. it. <laughs> it's not that I'm happy I'm out of the house. And away from you guys, because obviously I love being around you guys. It's more the fact that I needed a bit of my own space. Well, well every time I come home uh, after work, you're here. So yeah, nothing's really changed. <laughs> yeah, so th that's the reason I wanted to keep this place here is because I want to have like a workspace that's with you guys. As also, it's like a reason to come home every day and it's also rent-free. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a good transition, I guess. It's it's nice to be around here all the time, but it's also nice to go home and have my own space. Absolutely. But um, it's been a long process to get here, I guess. And uh, I think we should start from when I was a little boy. Mm, okay. Little, jo <laughs> little Josh right away. What, what are you trying to figure out what went wrong by, <laughs> by us going back so far? Yeah. <laughs> so I want to start off like, because obviously this is about… The, the main theme of this episode is, is like addiction and uh, the addiction through the parents' eyes. So I think we should start right from the beginning. And uh, I think the beginning starts with school, really. Listen, you were a normal kid. I mean, everything, you know, you were absolutely normal kid. You had an, a normal upbringing. Um, you did everything you were supposed to do. Um, there was no trauma. You were, I think you were lucky that, that I mean, uh, your mom and I are, have always been close. And uh, we've never had uh, any problems with 
alcohol abuse or with anything really, you know, it was really, you really got brought up in a normal household. There's no doubt about it. I don't know how you feel about that, but. I mean, a lot of, it was, a lot of people that I see that like struggle with addiction, a lot of them come from really bad households. And I always said that I have the best family you could ever have. And I, that's like, honestly, the way I feel because not many people would put up with what you guys put up with. And I was, I mean, growing up, I had everything I ever wanted. There was nothing that I didn't have. Yeah. Whenever I needed help and, with and something. I mean, and I mean, we never need, we never wanted for money. We were always okay. Yeah. I mean, we're not mega wealthy people, but you always had everything really that you needed, you know? So, so you weren't spoiled coming from a really rich family, but you certainly didn't want for anything either. Yeah. I mean, I always had good schooling. I always had clothes. I always had, you know what I mean? We went on family vacations. We, we had, I had everything really. Yeah. So listen, there was, there's no doubt you were a different kid as well. I mean, we certainly had some, some really funny moments. Yeah. So I've got, I, I've written down here, talk about the, the jackass videos. Well, I think maybe we go back a little bit from that, but, and I don't, I don't know if I got the story a hundred percent right, because I only heard it second or third hand, but it was about you and that, that tape that you picked up at school. There was like, they had sectioned off an area at the school. Oh, no. No, no, we'll have to talk about this. So, so. I don't know. Something happened at the school, and they sectioned. They it was section- in. It was in the hall. They had put like security tape security around the hall. Security tape. So somehow Josh had got hold of a. You had got hold of a piece of this tape, and of course, as usual, you always had to sit at the front of your class because that's the only way a teacher could keep an eye on you. Yeah. Right. So you can correct me if I'm wrong with this. And you were at your desk playing with this tape, right? Yes. And your teacher told you to stop playing with it? Yes. Right. Okay, so then you had it underneath the table and you were still playing with it. And she said, she said, here's the, if, if you keep playing with the tape, I'm going to take it away from you. Okay, so what happened when she tried to take it away from you? So I There had, was some resistance, right? You couldn't get it. So the, basically, <laughs> I had taken the tape and I had wrapped it around my... Your penis. For lack of a better word, <laughs> penis. <laughs> and um, she was like, if you keep playing with it, I'm going to take it away from you. So I kept playing with the, the other side of the tape and she came to take it away from me and she was yanking on this tape and like, it wasn't going anywhere. And she was like, let go of the tape. And I was like, I'm not, <laughs> I was like, I'm not holding the tape. <laughs> and she yanked it so hard, it snapped. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but also there was the, there was the, the jackass videos as well, which were, well, listen, most, most of the time, we, we didn't, I didn't really know what was going on with the jackass videos because I was at work during the day. And, but normally we would find the evidence of, of, <laughs> of videos that had been done in our absence. And I remember the one day coming home and I used to have a Fenter trailer in the driveway. You remember the trailer? And it was to carry my bikes around whenever we went uh, on a bicycle ride out, the, out of town. And I got home one day, and as I parked next to it, it was completely out of shape. It, it was, <laughs> I wouldn't call it out of shape. <laughs> it was buggered. It was just… It was wrecked. It was wrecked. And nobody was saying a word. 
And of course, my wife protects, a mother protects her son. So she wasn't saying a word either. But a couple of weeks later, the all was revealed in a video. Um, down the road from our house, there was, a, there was a big pit where somebody was about to build a house. And Josh and his friends had decided to launch the Fenter trailer over the edge of the pit with him inside. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and how did that go for you? <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, it was painful, but uh, we, got the, we got the shot. So as a kid, I didn't really care about um, the pain or anything. It was just all about getting the shot. Getting the video. And, man, and, it, the, and it's still about that, right? It's still about <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, as I got older, it kind of got even more hectic in a way because it wasn't really just like, doing silly pranks or stupid stunts. It got into like really like my documentary style work, which takes me to really dangerous areas. Uh, listen, I think as much as we don't like it as a parent, but I think as a documentary photographer, you have to take those risks. Of course. Otherwise, you're not going to get the photos. You're not going to get the video. And it's, it's, it's terrible, but that's what it is. That's what it is. I know that's what it takes. I mean, the, those good guys are the ones that, that, that are in the firing line. They're, they're, they're in the dangerous areas and they're not hiding. They're out there. So Yeah, I mean, so. and how do you feel when I come home and I'm like, you, don't, you guys are so like desensitized to it though, I think. Because you don't, like when I come home and I've been hit with bricks and stuff. Because I remember the, the one time I went to a protest and uh, it was in the middle of a township. And I was with all the riot police and they all had riot gear. And I was obviously just in my shirt and like shorts and whatever. I was just dressed normally. And I was walking down this alley and this guy came over the alley and whacked me with a brick and it hit my neck. And I remember it cut my neck all the way down. But if that brick had hit me in the head, I would have 100% either been severely brain damaged or dead. And I come home and I tell you guys, you're like, oh, yeah, just go wash it up. No, hold on. You're not telling the full story. I think you came home and said you got hit in the neck with a brick and somebody threw one at your car. Oh, yeah, my and car think, was stoned. So I think mom and I ran straight out to have a look to see the damage on the car because we were so tired of fixing it. <laughs> we weren't that concerned the, yeah, about that. The car was always getting <laughs> getting wrecked. I was like, man, that so, yeah, is, I, I seem to remember we ran out to have a look at the car and we're like, damn, we're going to fix this car again. <laughs> but anyway, I want to talk, no, because I feel like you're digressing here. You're, I feel like you don't want to talk about it in a way because every time I bring up the addiction, you kind of start on these tangents about stories. So let's get back to this again. Okay, go for it. What was it like sending, so, okay, so as I got in through my schooling career, obviously I didn't, didn't do well, right? I was never doing well. I was never interested in school. Um, and at the age of 16, my, my drug usage got like, like, yeah, it started getting much worse. What was it like sending your 16-year-old kid to a rehab facility for the first time? Listen, as a, as a parent, you're kind of in a little bit of denial about what your kids are getting up to. And I mean, I mean, we obviously knew you had a drug problem because you would sleep all day. You were up all night. Um, you got really thin. You were for a long time. You were you really, really thin. You lost a lot of weight um, and you weren't interested in every, anything. You had no interests. 
you weren't playing sport. You used to be used to really love your sport. You remember you used to play a lot of soccer, um, and you stopped all of that. Everything just disappeared. And then I remember the. You probably don't know this, but the first time we took to, took you to, into a rehab, you weren't really wanting to go. That, I was very young. Time. I was very young, so you I didn't understand it. You were young. You were not wanting to go. I don't think you even realized you had a problem. And uh, we dropped you off at the rehab. It was the one in Rondebosch, I think, was the your, Kenilworth. It was in Kenilworth. There was for the three weeks, and we dropped you off. I was in the car with mom, and. Yeah, I mean, even now I'm getting emotional. And she dropped me off back at the office and I actually sobbed my eyes out. I'm already tearing <laughs> up. I did. I actually sobbed my eyes out. I couldn't actually stop crying. It was such an emotional thing, you know? I look, even now I'm like tearing up. And have you ever seen me tear up? Not in a long time. I don't time. think I've ever teared up in front of you. You have before. Hey? But not, not often, eh? Hey? Mm. And I just broke into this uncontrollable sobbing it was really uh it was it was terrible yeah it was terrible um and then uh you were in there for three weeks and i don't think i don't think it did that that first that first uh that first stint in rehab didn't really do much for you i remember as soon as i left i started using it oh, again oh, i got home it. and i started that's using it. you were back straight in you just weren't ready you just weren't ready you know, so yeah, it was tough. That first bit was tough for sure. And then I think I went into treatment again a little while later as well. I, I don't quite remember. I, I remember I went twice when I was very young. And then I, I think the 16-year-old was, when I was 16, wasn't even my first time. I don't know. I, I have trouble remembering the dates exactly. But I remember when I was 16 years old, I decided that I was leaving school as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, well, had no, you had no interest. I mean, I remember going to the school, meeting with the, the, your headmistress at the time, and they were, they were saying, yes, we'll get you a scribe, we'll get you this, we'll get you that. And I think I turned around and I said to you, what do you want? Do you remember that? Mm. And you were like, I want out. I was just so done with it. Eh? I, done, just, yeah. I, um, I really struggled at school. I had zero interest in it. And... Um, I, I give credit to my old school because they they were always trying to help. And oh, absolutely. I, was, they were I think they were amazing. They really tried. And I was a very yeah. naughty kid. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that they always wanted to keep me there and trying to help even more was, yeah, I gave a lot of credit to them. And what was going through your head when I made that decision? Were you, because obviously I didn't have uh, a clear vision of where I wanted to go with my career. I was very young. I was 16, 17 years old. Um, I mean, luckily, I did start studying. I got in somewhere, luckily. Um, but you know, as, as a parent, because I know growing up for kids, parents are like, this is what I want for my kid. I want them to grow up. I want them to be normal. I want them to have friends. I want them to finish school, get a good job, and get married. And I grew up, and I was a drug addict. And I didn't finish school. Listen, at that stage, you must remember you were already the second child, right? So your brother, funny enough, was at the same school and didn't fit in either for different reasons. I mean, he didn't, I mean, Daniel's never had a drug problem. There was no issues that, but he just never fitted in that school. So we had already been through it once before. 
And when he moved to Abbott's, he fitted in really well and he, and he prospered. So, so we figured, well, you're not fitting in. Let's give it a shot and let's see. Although at the time we didn't have any clear plan. But I think uh, moving you to Abbott's might have not have been such a great idea because I think… Uh, I don't think it was a bad idea. I think, I think it's a great school. Yeah. I just think I was the problem, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, maybe, but I think there was a lot of kids there with similar problems to you. Yeah. And I think that's where you aligned yourself. And, uh, and I think there was no turning back at that point, you know. But it was hard. It was hard. It, uh, it, caused, a, it, it caused a real problems in our marriage, I must say. It was a very tough thing because your mom was very soft on you. And anything you wanted money-wise, she was giving you. And you know you went through a fortune of money. Of I mean, course, yeah. I mean, I was, I, was, um, I was fully hooked. Yeah. And I would do anything I could to, to, to use. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, we um, know. I mean, things were going missing, you know. And uh, I mean, I, I couldn't, I never, at, at that stage, I, was, I always used to run our business account. And mom used to run our personal account. So I never really knew how much money you were going through because she would just say, listen, we need some money and I used to transfer it. But when I look back at how much money you went through, it was a fortune. I mean, it, it wasn't only that though. Because I, was, I was thinking about this last night and a lot of people always say that when I talk about the things that I did when I was inactive, when I was using drugs, that I'm very like emotionless because I honestly feel like a different person did them. Because that's how I feel now. I feel like I'm a completely different person. Well, yeah, I mean, you are a different person. So I mean, when, <laughs> when I talk about these things, if I'm not like getting emotional or, or anything like that, it's just because it's honestly, I cannot believe that I was doing these things. And uh, I mean, some of the, the more, more hectic stuff besides obviously the, the, the using like ridiculous amounts of money and stealing from you guys and was the, the car crashes. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of those, huh? We went through, I don't know how many cars were written off. Three cars, maybe four cars. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> this is this is another thing that's come up when I bring these stories up. Is like people go, how could you as parents keep letting him get into a car after what he was doing? And I think it's not on you guys because I was so manipulative that I was like, oh, if I don't have a car, Josh I'm not is still manipulative. <laughs> No, you're just but, sober. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's like, if I, I was like, oh, it, I wrote my car off and then I had this massive accident where it was, um, you, I mean, do you want to tell the story? Well, are you talking about the one in the Seat? Yeah. In your car. So I, 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 got a, I, I got a call. I was at work, which is funny enough, just down the road from where the accident was. And uh, I was told that, that you were in a really, really bad accident. And I, I grabbed your brother, Daniel, and we hopped in the car and he's like, and he said to me, gun it, go, go, go. go. And I, I actually said to him, I said, just calm down because whatever has happened has happened. At that stage, I was, I was resigned to something bad happening. I wasn't panicked at all. It was a weird thing. And my friend called you to tell you about the accident, yeah, right? But it was so weird that I was so composed and, 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 calm about it, you know, and, 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 I, and I got there and I saw you as you were fine. And, and, and I mean, but the car was totally I mean, I, written off. When you, you got know, there, was, I was lying on the floor. Yeah, but you were okay. Once I talked to you, I could see you were yeah. fine. So, um, but 
that just shows you how desensitized already we were to it, you know. Uh, but I, I still go back to this, the, the, the point where I still don't think we realized how bad you were. No, I don't think you still realize you know, how bad I was. You, you always think the best for your kids. but And I mean, we, we knew you had a problem, but I don't think we realized how big it was, you know. And with, yeah. with that accident, I mean, I went into a tree going like 85, 90, 100 k's an hour. But you always had a story. It was always somebody else's fault. It was always someone else's always fault. Always somebody yeah. else's fault, you know. And of course, we wanted to believe you, you know. Oh, you went through a red light or oh, he was speeding or oh, he was… It was always something, you know. Yeah. And, and we, then the, the next week after that accident, you remember what happened? Yeah, another accident. So you lent… So I lent you my car and you had a crash in that one and wrote that one off. And flipped it. Yeah. And flipped the car in front of you, I think. That's… I flipped the… Yeah. So it was… I mean, it was just so out of control that… And it, like people always say, like, how could you, you know what I mean? As parents, to me, they go, how do your parents let you do this? And I'm like, I was so manipulative that they just didn't know what to do. Yeah. And it's yeah, like, I if agree. you don't give me a car, how am I going to get to school now? Yeah, absolutely. You, you used to play all the, all the games on The us. guilt trips, All yeah. the mind trips, for sure. Yeah, which, absolutely. Which I think is a thing that pretty much every parent that has a child is, is, the, is a parent of an addict goes through. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because… Because we want to believe. We want to believe our kids. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing as a parent. You want to believe your kids and you want to believe that they're not lying to you or, you know, they're doing the best or they're… But uh, unfortunately, it's not always like that. And then it comes to the, the years of the arrests. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the thing with… Listen, with... I, I, I'm, I'm glad you were arrested. And, and, and if it had happened sooner, maybe you would have turned around sooner. Because I think the arrests were your turning points. So I think this is like the thing is, if you've noticed through this talk that over the years, things just steadily get worse and worse and worse. And it starts with a little bit of using, then it gets to like, now it's kind of every day and then leaving school, then it's the car accidents. And now it's like you're at the point where you're starting to get arrested for your crimes. Things steadily get worse and worse and worse. And I think this was the breaking point for all of us where it was, I got arrested. Well, I think you had three triggers. The first one was getting arrested at Rocking the Daisies. And I remember we came through to, I think it was Darling. It was Darling, yeah. Darling. You were, we came through and you were in lying on the floor in a dirty cell in Darling. Really completely out of it. That was the first time. And what was that uh, like for you? It was, it nearly destroyed us. It was so, we, I mean, we came back, but we had kind of decided you were going to stay in there for the weekend. I remember, so I, I don't remember, I remember being in there and then I remember seeing you guys come and I don't know what was going on, well, I do, but I, I stood up and looked at you guys. I don't remember saying anything. And then I just remember going on the Lying floor. Lying down again. And yeah. just going we didn't to say much. And we talked to the cops outside and, they, and, the, and the, the constable in charge there was so nice. You know, he was like, he was like actually sorry for you. You know what I mean? He was actually really sorry for us too. We were, and we hired a lawyer and we basically, we, I don't know if you remember, well, of course you remember what happened, but you ended up having to go to court 
And fortunately, they caught you with a very, very small amount of drugs. But do you, do you remember what um, happened in between that time of going to court? Yeah, you got, you got uh, almost caught again. So yeah, I mean, should I get into that I'll story? I'll let a you bit? tell that story because <laughs> I wasn't there. But I mean, you told me afterwards, but you'll tell it. Should I actually tell the whole story? Or yeah, why not? So Maybe I don't know the whole story. I know is, most of it. Yeah, but. this is a, is a wild story, and this is something that um, I am like honestly very, very ashamed of. And at the time, I just didn't know what to do. But l- let me start from the beginning. So I went out with some friends and. Um, on that night, this was in between the trial. Like, this was in between court dates. And um, on that night, we went out and things got a bit crazy. My, like, friends were getting into fights and I was running around looking for, for drugs. And um, I remember being on my way home. I was, I, was, I was done with that night and I was like, I've got my stuff already now and I'm going to go home. So on my way to the car some friends were like, come to our car and we'll use together. And then you can, like, I'll go home. Uh, so I went to their car, which was in an underground parking lot. And I was sitting in the car. And there was a lot of commotion already because my friends had been fighting and that kind of stuff. So w- when I was in the car, the police were already kind of circling everyone. And I just remember seeing the police walk down this, into this underground parking lot. And I was like, we're done. Um, and the car smel- smelled of, of, of weed, and I had drugs on me as well. So anyway, the cops came to the car, and they told us to get out of the car and uh, on our knees. And uh, obviously, I was still in, I was about to go to court for, for, my, for the other things I had done. So I was like, I cannot be here right now. I need to get out of here. Um, so I stood up, and I ran. I got up got up off my knees and I ran away. And I just remember hearing the cops go, we'll get him. <laughs> so I sprinted as well. You kind of left your friends there as evidence. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. This is a horrible thing to say, but I, it's, I, can re- I can see what their faces looked like when I got up and ran away. I didn't see what they looked like, but I know they were all just like, <laughs> like gobsmacked, like this kid just up and left us. Um, and it, it was, majority of it was my fault because... I was, you know what I mean? I had the stuff on me. But anyway, so I get up and run away and I'm running down this road and suddenly I jump over a fence and I'm in someone's house now. And all I hear is cops going up and down the road, flying up and down. And uh, now I'm like, what do I do? So I'm stuck in between these two walls and I climb and I'm on the roof of this house now. And I'm looking on the road and I see that there's just people flying up and down. Uh, Cops literally everywhere. I don't know why there were so many cops for just me. Um, but I was on this roof and I had no idea what to do. So I called an Uber to the location where I was at. And uh, as soon as I got there, I hopped off the roof and into this Uber and, and went home. Uh, and I was, yeah, I was up the whole night, absolutely breaking it. I was really, really scared, but I kind of thought I'd got away with it. Uh, it turns out my friends that I was there with had spent the night in a holding cell and um, the next day, the mother of one of my friends came to the house and just was broken. She was distraught. And that's how we found out what had happened. And that's how my parents found out w- what had happened. Um, and I think that was pretty much one of the big breaking points uh, when we realized that 
Well, I remember you sitting in that spare room going, they're going to put me in Polesmore. You know what they do to people like me in Polesmore? I was, I was, <laughs> I, I know, it sounds funny, but it's, it was, I was so scared that I was going to get sent to, because that's what I was being told by, by people that I was going to get sent to Polesmore for, because obviously I had really violated stuff sure. from, from the other case. And, um, I was just so scared. Eh? And I remember you sitting with me and just going, there's nothing we can do. You know what I mean? We're just going to have to see how this goes. And uh, thankfully, everything worked out in the end. And Well, we had a good lawyer. But even after… I mean, the, that's… Yeah. We I mean, had a, We had a good lawyer and, and, and he helped the other kids as well, even though they might not know it, but he helped the other kids too. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you're not in contact with any of them anymore. I wonder mm -hmm. if… I wonder if that also shocked them that they turned their lives around. I mean, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too sure. But uh, for me, th this is where the real insanity comes in is that where it was like a breaking point, I still kept on using. I remember one day you came to me and you said, mom had just gone away or something. Well, I, 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 I took the opportunity. Your mom was in Australia, I think, visiting her sister. And before you even get into the story, I, I remember her telling me because mom came to say goodbye to me before she went away. And she remembers shaking me in bed and trying to wake me up to say goodbye. And what, you just didn't wake up? Or? Didn't even wake up. She mm. actually like, I wasn't even moving really. Uh, but th that was a normal thing at the time. Imagine that as a mother trying to wake your kid up to say goodbye because you're going on a holiday and like they're just not moving. Well, I, I, I saw that as an opportunity when she left. And, and, and no disrespect to your mom, because obviously she's very soft, you know. And I saw it as an opportunity to, to do something about it. Without, that some, something I could do without her interfering. You know, without her being able to talk me out of it. Because it was, believe me, it was hard enough as it is. Without somebody else trying to talk you out of it or saying, maybe it's not necessary or, you know, you understand. And I think we sat and had a talk. And I think at that stage, you realized that you were going one way. I mean, a lot of people say, a lot of, a lot of people in the circles I'm in, because I obviously do a lot of like NA and I, I do meetings. And a lot of people say that they were dragged into rehab. No, no, I think you were ready. I was, you, I remember I, you coming I, to me. It wouldn't matter what I said. If you weren't ready, it, it wouldn't have been right. You were ready. I remember you coming to me and saying, do you want to go to treatment? And I said, please. Yeah, correct. And that was the first time that, that, we had, that, that we had asked that question that way. Before it was, you're going for treatment, right? <laughs> it's a big difference. Yeah. So it wasn't really me. It was you were ready. You were ready for it, for sure. I was ready for 21 days. <laughs> yeah. Well, Six months later, that, still in rehab. <laughs> that's where we, we lied a little bit. We said... You'll do three weeks and then we'll see, right? There was a lot of we'll see. Yeah. And after that three weeks, you ended up doing another two weeks in Hout Bay. And then you stayed on, I think, a little bit longer and eventually ended up at six months. I was the star pupil at my rehab center, yeah. I tell you. <laughs> I was the star. <laughs> but I, I mean, I don't think you can, you can go through seven years of addiction and be cured in three weeks. So this is the thing that that whenever I give advice to people about getting clean, I always say that 21 days is not enough. Um, 
for me, what I really realized is because obviously at 21 days, I was ready to leave. And I was like fighting and kicking and screaming to try and get out. I was like, I'm fine. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And then that happened all the way up until three months, I think, which is, which is about 90 days. And yeah. I've heard this saying before, it takes 90 days to break a habit. Uh, obviously, you never break addiction. It's always going to be there. But um, I think after that amount of time, your brain starts to… You start thinking differently and you start seeing things differently. I think it's important. You know, yeah, it's a big thing. You start to clear up a little bit. And that's definitely started happening because I remember three months, I was like, I'm in the right place. And it got to the point where I actually, they kicked me out of rehab because they were like, you're getting too comfortable here. <laughs> um, but… The, you the, all, listen, you also had a good psychologist there. Great one. I mean, Shout you, out. <laughs> you bonded to her, with her, and yeah, she great. helped you a lot, you know, and she still helps you today. Yeah. You know, and I think that was also a big part of it. So. 100%. But, but I remember the, when you started coming home for weekends, do you remember that episode where we took you out for breakfast and you had a poppy seed bagel? Yeah. And then when you went back on that Sunday night, you tested positive. Yeah, I remember. remember that. Yeah, it wasn't that. It wasn't a poppy seed bagel. It was a poppy seed. Literally, like <laughs> the whole thing was just poppy yeah. seeds, basically. And I didn't realize that that would show up on a drug test. So that became like a whole number. And uh, eventually they… they but at that stage, your mom and I had no doubt that you were clean. Yeah. I mean, we were on your side. That's for sure. So… Yeah. <laughs> so, that, I mean, it comes up positive on the, the normal P tests. But they took me for a real test, which obviously shows the difference. And it, it came up as negative. But… um. The thing, with, the thing with rehab, which is so great, is it gives the parents enough time to go, um, now I know my kid is in a safe place. It's because before, you guys were always worrying about me. Where is he? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Why we, is he? At night, we, we, I mean, we hardly didn't sleep well. Because we were always wondering where you were, what you were up to, you know. Why is he coming home at four in the morning? Or yeah. why is he going out at four in the morning to do what? Is he getting in a car accident today? You know what I mean? Every time, to this day, Debbie, every time I leave the house, Debbie goes, which is my mom, she says, drive, drive safe, be careful. It's, it's, it's it, because it's burnt into her memory. Every time I left the house when I was in active addiction, there was a possibility I was either not going to come home or I was going to crash or something was going to happen. And… The thing with rehab is it gives the parents time to decompress and go, my kid is in a safe place. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you know I, I, I'm changing the subject a little bit, but when I walk into this room with all these lights, these bright lights, four or five years ago, you would walk into this room, you'd be growing something in here with all these lights. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought about when I walked in here. I thought, oh, it's like a growing room. Yeah. It's a grow room, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, these aren't, these aren't the right lights, man. No, no, but even still, it was kind of what went through my head, you yeah. know. <laughs> you know, four or five years ago, you would walk in here, there would be uh, plants growing in here. <laughs> they definitely would. Yeah. This would be the most bomb-ass yeah. room ever. <laughs> lights everywhere. And, you yeah. know, I would have tricked you into helping me build yeah, it as well. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh. I'm pretty yeah. sure I tried to trick you into building it before. No, I don't think I was that stupid. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, but I, basically, I, I kind of maybe want to… I mean, is there anything else we haven't really covered? Listen, you've talked about your addiction. But you haven't really talked about what you've achieved after your addiction. This is it. I've actually completely missed that section. So, You're correct. I mean, the… 
funny thing was, as soon as you were clean, you started really doing well. Things started to fall into place for you. Okay? Do you remember that? I can't remember exactly what it was, but you took some pictures and suddenly you had, you had interest in your photos and things were happening for you just almost straight away. And I think you could see that, eh? That you could now focus and concentrate. And I think you probably put in a lot of your effort into what you do now. So it's, it was, it was like almost like a sign that when I got clean, I just started doing really started well. Doing well. And um, over the years, I mean, so much has really changed. It's, I can wake up in the mornings, I, I can be responsible. You're still manipulative. <laughs> you, st- you still twist us around your finger. No, no more than a normal kid. I don't <laughs> yeah, think maybe no. Maybe not. But, um, but uh, I mean, don't, I mean, we've talked for half an hour about your addiction. But don't, don't undermine your success. You know, there, there's parents out there that are going to watch this and they need to know that, that things can happen after addiction, that you found great success. Yeah, so I mean, the, I've done it a bit of an unconventional way. Like obviously there's the Well, 12, it wasn't going to be any other way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'll break it down. There's like, there's a 12-step there's a program in Narcotics Anonymous and... Um, I, so I, I go to NA every weekend. When I, when I came out of treatment, I stopped seeing every friend that I had ever made, pretty much, except for maybe one or two. You had no friends. I had no you friends. You had no friends. I had no real schooling. I had, uh, I had no life at all. No, but the one thing you did have going for you was your camera. <laughs> My camera, yeah. It was. It's true. Yeah. Though. I mean, your camera, you had, your, you had interest in your camera Long before the addiction. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've been taking photos since I was 10, yeah. Yeah, and that's where you put your energies back in again. It's been a long process, and um, I have built things up slowly over time. It's been almost three years now that I've been clean, and um, it took me years. It took me probably a year and a half to, well, not years. It took me probably a year and a half, two years, just to make some new friends. And then it took me even longer to build confidence again. And you know what I mean? There's so many things that I've built up over time. And now it's got to the point where I can go. I want to move out. And I moved out. And well, I, did you see, we gave you no resistance. We were, we knew you were ready. So, yeah. you know, we knew you were ready. As, as hard as it was for us, we knew it was the right thing. It's also hard for Jesse. The our, dog. Our dog, because he doesn't do wacky Wednesday burgers with you, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, but I think everything has come to a, a great point. And um, I just want to ask you just to end off on what advice would you give to parents that are in a similar position as you? And uh, maybe thinking of throwing in the towel or this is just too much. I can't keep going. Or maybe the advice is throwing the towel because at some point there has to be some tough love. But what is your advice to, to parents that went through something that, or are going through something that you went through? I think you, you can't walk around with blinkers. You've got you've to know what's going on and how deep your kid is into it. Um, you've got to make sure money's tight. Access to money is a big thing, you know, because, I mean, if you didn't have access to money, it would have been a lot harder, right? So access to money is tight and, and you kind of, also have to forgive your kid. You have to forgive your kid because I believe it's a disease. 
You it is 100%. You didn't want to be like that. Mm. I'm sure you didn't want to be like that. And and uh, we believed in you. We, 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 were, we were strong enough in our home and our marriage that we thought we could help you. To me, that's the biggest thing I've done in my life was to help you recover. I hope I, 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 it looks like I've done enough, but I hope I've done enough, you know, but to know that we'll always be there for you, you know, and you've got to forgive your kids. They're going to do stuff that they're not proud of and that you're not proud of them doing, but you've got to forgive them and, and teach them the right way. I think you definitely did that. And uh, I think what you said was very important where it's, when you see the signs, don't choose not to believe them because it's easier. And I think that's what you guys did for quite a long time. Uh, absolutely. You were so in denial and you didn't want to believe what was going on. So you just kind of uh, ignored it until it got to the point where you couldn't ignore it anymore. Uh, absolutely. For sure. So I think that brings us to the end of the first episode of the Wide Awake podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And um, I hope we didn't put you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're still wide awake after this episode. Uh, but yeah, it's been a, it's been quite the process this, and I'm very excited to see where this goes. And thank you, Tony, my oh, dad. It's a pleasure. And we're excited to see what you do with your profession and your future. Yeah. Now Me that too. you can see things clearly. Cool. See you next week.